Hello, this is Ruth Yanoff, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 7th issue of the Washington Post on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Canadian wildfire smoke brings dangerous air pollution to U.S. This article contains live updates, and I'll be reading them also. It's by Andrew Jiang and Victoria Bissett. Smoke and haze from the wildfires ravaging swaths of Canadian forests have reached the eastern United States. Hazardous fine particles have degraded air quality in regions as far away as South Carolina, turning the skies gray and brown. In New York City, which is now behind only New Delhi for poor air pollution levels worldwide, officials told the most vulnerable people to wear high-quality masks if they go outside. As of early Wednesday, Canadian officials reported more than 400 active fires, with more than 240 listed as out of control. And there's an inset. Here's what to know. And I'll be reading more about these. A bullet. Detroit and Toronto were also ranked among the 10 cities with the world's worst air quality, according to IQ Air, an air quality information platform. Hints of smoke were even flirting with the Georgia-Florida border. Another bullet point. More than 150 of the fires burning now in Canada are in the province of Quebec, with dozens also reported in Alberta and British Columbia. Bullet. People should stay indoors, limiting exposure to the smoke as much as possible, including during exercise, experts said. Be aware of your local air quality and wear masks that can filter out tiny particles, they added. And this is a report from 15 minutes ago. Experts see climate change fingerprint in worsening heat waves and fires by Diana Leonard. As heat-driven fires continue to become real-world disasters, there is more evidence pointing to the fuel behind them. In Canada, fire area burn has doubled since the, 19, the early 1970s, said Michael Flanagan, a professor of wildland fire at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia. My colleagues and I attribute this largely to human-caused climate change. A study published in the journal Environmental Research Letters in May measured the link between the forest fires and the fossil fuel emissions, finding that nearly 40% of the total forest area burned in the western United States and southwestern Canada between 1986 and 2021 can be attributed to emissions from the largest 88 fossil fuel producers and cement manufacturers. And here's an update. Air Quality Index explained. What does code red or code purple mean? By Andrew Jiang. There's a photo of a, a man sitting on the coast. Well, it's not really the coast. On the banks of the East River in Brooklyn. Uh, and this is from Monday, and you can see the haze covering all the buildings that he's looking across at. Some parts of New York City and Philadelphia reported code purple air qualities early Wednesday. The Wilmington area in Delaware and Bridgeport, Connecticut were reporting code red air qualities. What does that mean? The higher the U.S. air quality index, which ranges from 0 to 500, the worse the air quality. An air quality index value of 50 or below represents good air quality, code green. Code yellow signifies moderate concern, while code orange means that the AQI is between 101 and 150. And while members of sensitive groups can experience health effects, the general public is less likely to be affected. Code red refers to the tier between 151 and 200 and it means the air is unhealthy for some members of the public, but everyone in these areas should reduce exposure to pollution, especially those at increased health risk, such as people with asthma. Some members of the general public may experience health effects. Members of sensitive groups may experience more serious health effects, the Environmental Protection Agency says. The tier above red, code purple, refers to the range from 201 to 300, and the risk of health effects is increased for everyone. Code maroon, 301 and up, means the air is hazardous and serves as a health warning of emergency conditions. An update from 54 minutes ago. 
Canadian wildfires cause hazy conditions at Yankee Stadium by Morgan Coates. And there's a photo of the stadium and it's very hazy and you can see the players on the field. Yankee Stadium in the Bronx was cast in an eerie light Tuesday as smoke from Canadian wildfires reached New York City. And there are more photos of the team they're playing, the Chicago White Sox, uh, standing during the national anthem while the, um, all you can see is haze in the upper, the upper decks. An hour ago by Brian Peach. All outdoor activities at public schools in New York City, including recess, will be canceled on Wednesday, the school system announced, citing guidance from city health officials. Here's an update from an hour ago. Smoke invaded the D.C. area yet again Tuesday and could get worse. By Ian Livingston. Code orange air quality alert issued for Wednesday for D.C. area. Another potentially beautiful day in the D.C. area has been tainted by wildfire smoke wafting across the sky. Tuesday was one of a growing number of days this spring and now early summer in which smoke robbed the region of bright sunshine and blue skies and at times lowered air quality and visibility and the fire season is just getting started. While the smoke has remained high in the atmosphere most days, some of Tuesday's smoke brewed by fires in Quebec also made it to the surface. The same happened Thursday from wildfires in New Jersey. In addition to offering an occasional whiff of acrid air, the smoke has raised health concerns. Parts of the region are experimenting, experiencing code orange air quality, hazardous for sensitive groups, with a few nearing code red, signifying unhealthy air for the general population. Another update, where are the Canadian wildfires right now? By Victoria Bissett. There are 423 active fires across Canada. 246 of them are out of control, according to the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre. The worst affected province is Quebec, where 154 of the fires have been recorded so far. There are also 70 active fires in Alberta, which is also at the highest level of preparedness, and 68 in British Columbia. 20 of the 45 new wild, new wild land fires recorded Tuesday were in Ontario, according to the center's statistics. The eastern provinces of Newfoundland and Labrador and New Brunswick and Yukon Territory in the West appear to have escaped most of the fires, however. But as in the United States, the impact of the fires has been felt beyond worst affected areas. Yellowknife, the capital of the Northwest Territories, and the town of Fort Smith, which lies on that territory's border with Alberta, were both forecast to be classified very high risk due to the poor air quality overnight Tuesday, the highest level on the Canadian government's index. The government advised that children and elderly people in these areas should avoid any physical exertion outdoors, while the rest of the population should reduce such activities, especially if you experience symptoms such as coughing and throat irritation. The Canadian capital, Ottawa, and the city of Montreal were forecast to remain at high risk on Wednesday, though Quebec City was moved down into the moderate risk category. People with heart and lung conditions are most vulnerable to air pollution, the government warns, although children are also susceptible as they inhale more air and therefore more, more pollutants compared to their body weight than adults. The final update I'm going to read is from two hours ago. U.S. Midwest Northeast face unusual summer fire threat as drought expands by Diana Leonard. Wildfire hotspots could emerge in unusual locations this summer, from the Pacific Northwest to the Great Lakes to New England, according to the latest outlooks from the National Interagency Fire Center. Both recent and upcoming hot, dry weather largely focused on the northern tier of the United States is driving the uptick in fire danger. A wet winter and cool spring have suppressed wildfire activity across much of the western United States, Although the amount of acreage burned nationwide remains well below average so far this year, that may begin to shift in June. Recent intense heat waves may usher in an early fire season in the Pacific Northwest, which has had, which had a drier than normal winter. 
Fire danger has escalated in Michigan this past week, while a flash drought could develop in parts of, mid, of the Midwest and Northeast. A sneak preview of the risk of the Northeast faces emerged Tuesday as the National Weather Service declared a critical fire danger in Southeast Pennsylvania and New Jersey because of low humidity, drought, gusty winds, and the possibility of dry thunderstorms that unleash lightning but little rain. The Weather Service believes it's the first time it has raised concerns about dry thunderstorms in the Northeast. Next, Pence kicks off 2024 run beginning extraordinary showdown with Trump. His campaign starts the com competition against his former boss more than two years after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol upended their relationship by Marianne Levine and Ashley Parker. Byline is Des Moines, Iowa. Mike Pence on Wednesday kicked off his campaign for president, officially beginning an extraordinary competition against his former boss, Donald Trump, more than two years after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol upended their relationship. Today, our party and our country need a leader that will appeal, as Lincoln said, to the better angels of our nature, Pence said in a video announcement that touted his work as vice president, but did not mention Trump. My family and I have been blessed beyond measure with opportunities to serve this nation, and it would be easy to stay on the sidelines, but that's not how I was raised. That's why today, before God and my family, I am announcing I am running for President of the United States. And there is a photograph of uh, Pence, um, I believe at an, at an NRA convention, with his hand up and, and waving to the audience. The former vice president's decision to seek a return to the White House, this time in the top slot, represents his most direct challenge to Trump after serving dutifully for four years, but resisting his exhortations to overturn the 2020 election. Public polls of the GOP race this year have shown Pence and a pack of other rivals in the single digits, well behind Trump, the clear polling leader, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is in second place. Pence's entrance comes during a stretch of several Republican campaign launches, with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie kicking off his run Tuesday and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum doing so Wednesday. Pence has spent a considerable time laying a foundation for his run this year, making trips to early nominating states and GOP gatherings, promoting his vision for the country's future. It's going to be a historic moment when you have a former vice president, a former challenge, a former president, said Scott Reed, co-chair of Committed to America, a super PAC supporting Pence's candidacy. It just shows you how high the stakes of this election are. Now, Pence has addressed January 6th head on, but he's going to continue to talk about ways in which he differs with the former president on policies, policies that they pursued together while they were in office. He's not going to try to out-Trump Trump. He's going to stand out as a leader of character. Since they left office, there has been a stark divide between Pence and Trump over the January 6, 2021 attack in which a violent pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol on the day lawmakers gathered to certify the Electoral College results, some chanting, hang Mike Pence. The aftermath of the 2020 election marked the only time Pence broke publicly with Trump during his four years as vice president. While Pence has mostly tried to promote his own ideas in the run-up to launch, he has picked his spots for voicing direct criticism of Trump over January 6th, saying at a white-tie dinner earlier this year that Trump's reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day, and I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Leading up to, his January, to January 6th, Trump repeatedly made false claims that the election had been stolen and used incendiary language at a rally near the White House that morning. Yet Trump has claimed the violence he inspired that day was Pence's fault. Had he sent the votes back to the legislatures, they wouldn't have had a problem with January 6th. So in many ways, you can blame him for January 6th, Trump said in March. Now Pence, who once served as governor of Indiana, is charting his own path as a traditional conservative Republican in the model of President Ronald Reagan. Pence is expected to invest heavily in Iowa, where he's already made several visits and will launch his campaign with remarks in Ankeny, a suburb of Des Moines. 
A Pence advisor said the former vice president picked Iowa as opposed to Indiana for his launch to symbolize a forward-looking vision of the country. The campaign plans to travel to all 99 counties in Iowa, according to the advisor who spoke on the condition of anonymity to preview strategy. But there is plenty of skepticism about his chances. This could be very difficult for him. Iowans will be nice, but I don't know if there is the enthusiasm there for him to actually build up a campaign and do what's necessary to compete, said Craig Robinson, an Iowa Republican consultant. Pence has spent the last several months reminding voters of his longstanding ties to the anti-abortion and evangelical communities, as well as his consistency on policy issues that, until recently, were long considered traditional Republican orthodoxy. His allies recently launched the Committed to America Super PAC to reintroduce him to voters. The group, which can raise unlimited funds but cannot coordinate with the Pence campaign on spending strategies, will invest heavily in a paid voter contact program. The Pence team's, team's theory of the case is that the Republican base did not drift as extreme as some assume during the Trump era, and that Pence can capitalize on the policy successes of the Trump-Pence administration without the baggage of the controversies and chaos of Trump himself, which has left even some Trump supporters exhausted and looking for an alternative candidate. Yet that path to the nomination is shaping up as a difficult one. Some Trump loyalists have made clear they view Pence as a traitor for not overturning the results of the 2020 election, while those eager for change still view him as too closely associated with the former president during an April appearance at the National Rifle Association annual meeting in Indiana, Pence was greeted with some applause and loud boos. After two unsuccessful bids for Congress and a stint as a talk radio host during which he billed himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf, Pence was elected to the House in 2000 and quickly established himself as a principled conservative, both politically and personally. He railed against much of the spending of the George W. Bush era, including Bush's Medicare prescription drug expansion, and in 2002 he told The Hill that he doesn't dine alone with women other than his wife or attend events featuring alcohol without her. During this time in Congress, he also served as chairman of the Conservative Republican Study Committee. Trump tapped Pence as his running mate in 2016. During the primary, Pence had supported one of Trump's chief rivals, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Once in office, Pence promoted the administration's policy and was seen as a staunch defender of his boss. Despite having near-universal name recognition, Pence has nonetheless struggled to crack double digits in national polls. In focus groups of Republican voters, respondents regularly make clear that while many think Pence seems like a nice guy, he's not one of their top choices to become the party's nominee. A May poll from Quinnipiac University found that among Republicans, 48% had a favorable, favorable view of him, 35% had an unfavorable view of him, and 15% had not heard enough. This year, Pence has parted ways with several of his rivals, differentiating himself from some of the 2024 field with his stalwart support for Ukraine in the face of the Russian invasion last year. He also set himself apart from some during a March speech at Washington and Lee University in Virginia, where he called for common sense changes to entitlement programs, such as Medicare and Social Security, as well as the growing national debt. Ignoring the problem is no longer an option, Pence said in prepared remarks for a May speech at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Joe Biden's policy is insolvency. Sadly, so is President Trump's. And the same can be said of any candidate unwilling to talk about the urgent need to save Social Security before it collapses. During a visit this past weekend to Iowa for Republican Senator Jody Ernst's Roast and Ride event, Pence appeared to allude to his former boss by saying, we have to resist the politics of personality in referring to the siren song of populism. He has also sought to distinguish himself from Trump when it comes to abortion. I don't agree with the former president who says this is a state's only issue, Pence said at the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition's spring kickoff. Trump has dodged questions about a national ban on the procedure. 
a staunch opponent of abortion rights. Trump has said he would support a 15-week abortion ban. As a member of Congress, Pence also supported personhood legislation, which defines life as starting at the moment of conception and would ban abortions based on the 14th Amendment. He told CBS News recently that he would like to see abortion pills off the market. In April, Pence testified to a federal grand jury that is examining Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. A federal judge ruled this spring that Pence needed to comply with a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith, but could remain silent on subjects relating to his role in Congress on January 6th. The Justice Department, meanwhile, has closed its investigation into Pence's possession of potentially sensitive government documents after leaving office and will not pursue charges, officials said last week. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Washington Post on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This is from the Eating Lab. How can I avoid eating foods with forever chemicals? It's hard to avoid PFSAs, but experts say there were ways to mitigate your exposure to the man-made chemicals by Teddy Aminabar. Across the country, states are banning forever chemicals from consumer products, and some companies are promising to phase out use of the compounds. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Forever Chemicals, or PFSAS, which stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyloid substances, are known for their persistent ability to remain in nature and in the body for years. Certain PFAS, I'm going to call it, have been associated with serious health effects, including infertility, high blood pressure, and some cancers, according to the Food and Drug Administration. Cindy Lupe, the National Field Director of Clean Water Action, said it's very hard for people to avoid products with PFAS. For the average consumer, there's no way to avoid it, said Graham Peasley, a physics professor at the University of Notre Dame. You can do some smart things. We spoke to PFAS experts about the steps you can take to minimize exposure from the foods you eat. Here's their advice. Cut back on fast food and greasy wrappers. Grease-resistant res fast food packaging that keeps oil and meat juices from spilling on your clothes often also contain oil-resistant PFAS. This includes the paper wrappers, boxes, and other containers used to serve burgers, fries, and salads from fast food chains. Your ris re risk of exposure to PFAS depends on the contact time, the time the food has spent inside that plastic bag or paper wrapper, said Jamie DeWitt, professor of pharmacology and toxicology at East Carolina University. Last summer, Consumer Reports tested more than 100 food packages and reported higher level levels of PFAS in wraps, trays, and bags from Burger King, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and Cava, among others. The properties that make PFAS such useful compounds for oil-resistant fast food wrappers and raincoats are the same reason these chemicals can then stay in the body. The chemicals are unique because of their ability to cause harm at such low levels, said Dave Andrews, senior scientist at the Environmental Working Group, adding that the chemicals can prove to be a health concern at parts per million in, per trillion in drinking water. They actually stick to our blood and they accumulate in our bodies. In recent years, a number of major companies, including McDonald's and Burger King, have stated they're planning to reduce or phase out the use of packaging with forever chemicals. Skip microwave popcorn and cake mixes. Consumers can be frustrated because there's no simple way to test products for PFAS, and the chemicals aren't included on ingredient lists. Switching from packaged to fresh foods that don't spend as much time on the shelf can reduce your risk of exposure. In general, food packaging is a source of contamination, said Melanie Benish, vice president of government affairs at the Environmental Working Group. The fewer packaged foods that you are eating, the less likely you may be, be, may be to be exposed. Some packaged foods are potentially exposed to PFAS in materials longer than others, boxes of cake mix, often have the highest concentration of PFAS because the mix has been sitting in the packaging for a relatively long period of time, DeWitt said. 
some experts discourage frequent consumption of prepackaged microwave popcorn because the kernels are often sitting in that package of oil and other flavoring for an extended period of time. Keith Vorst, an associate professor and the director of Polymer and Food Protection Consortium at Iowa State University, said that when we heat up food in paper linings or plastic containers, there's a risk that some PFAS potentially coating the packaging can turn into a vapor and contaminate what we eat. But we don't know what the risk of exposure is, Forrest said. That is one area that we need to do some work in. It's also not clear how much our, of our exposure to PFAS comes directly from the food supply. The FDA tested for 30 different types of PFAS in samples of 718 foods. It found 701 of the samples to be free of PFAS. Experts say the study was too limited in scope to draw broad conclusions because there are thousands of PFAS in use. The testing of the food supply needs to be comprehensive, Andrews said. Avoid nonstick cookware. Nonstick pots and pans are often coated in a material with PFAS, Peasley said. He has switched to ceramic cookware and his eggs are no worse than they used to be. Be a little wary of things that are marketed as nonstick or stain resistant or water resistant, Benish said. Cooking with stainless steel or cast iron pans isn't just about protecting yourself from these forever chemicals, DeWitt said. Your potential exposure from a nonstick pan may not be significant, but that doesn't consider what it took to create the pan. The production of that pan is going to negatively impact other people who are bearing the brunt of the pollution that is produced when that nonstick coating is manufactured and applied, DeWitt said. Store leftovers in glass containers. Experts recommend storing leftovers and other food in glass containers, not plastic, in the fridge. Move away from plastics wherever possible. Lupi said that'll be one relatively easy and cost-effective thing to do. Drink filtered or bottled water. Check the results of water testing where you live and consider adding a water filtration system at home. Carbon filters on faucets or in water pitchers can reduce the levels of PFAS. If the filters are regular, regularly replaced, Andrew said, River osmo reverse osmosis systems installed under sink faucets can typically eliminate the PFAS contamination. Andrews said these systems typically cost a couple hundred dollars but can be more effective at removing PFAS. Your water supplier should provide water testing results. In March, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed drinking water standards that will require water utilities to reduce levels of PFAS contamination. The low density plastic used for bottled water is not considered a potential source of PFAS contamination, Peasley said. Unless a manufacturer makes a specific safety claim about PFAS, there's no way for a consumer to know if the bottled water itself has been tested. Bottled water is a lot safer than drinking a, a contaminated well with PFAS in it, Peasley said. Check the source of the fish you eat. PFAS have been widely detected in freshwater fish. Last year, the FDA conducted a targeted seafood survey and detected PFAS in 74% of the seafood tested, including in clams, cod, crab, pollock, salmon, shrimp, tilapia, and tuna. The data on PFAS in seafood is still very limited, the FDA wrote in a report on PFAS in foods. However, our testing indicates that seafood may be at higher risk for environmental PFAS contamination compared with other types of foods. Locally caught fish is more likely to have higher PFAS levels than farm-raised fish, experts say. Check statewide advisories before eating a recreationally caught fish. The FDA says people should continue to eat a variety of healthy foods, including seafood. The agency found the levels of PFAS detected in most seafood products tested did not appear to, uh, to pose a human health concern. Be cognizant of fish advisories, DeWitt said. Consume fish because it's healthy for you, but don't eat fish for every meal every day. Title, Bothered by Pot Smell, She Sued Her Neighbor to Stop Smoking and Won by Merrill Cornfield and Jim Belware. The byline is Washington, D.C. 
A D.C. judge has ruled that a man who smokes medical marijuana in his apartment must stop after a neighbor complained that the odor from his marijuana crept into her home and caused a nuisance. Judge Ebony Scott ruled late Monday that while Josefa Ippolito Shepard could not prove she is entitled to damages, she successfully made the case that the smell is a private nuisance, and Scott ordered Thomas Cackett to stop smoking. Scott said that Cackett is licensed to buy marijuana, but he does not possess a license to disrupt the full use and enjoyment of one's land. Indeed, the public interest is best served by eliminating the smoking nuisance and the toxins that it deposits into the air, toxins that involuntary smokers have no choice but to inhale, Scott wrote in her decision. Cackett is banned from smoking at his address or within 25 feet of Ippolito Shepard's address. The decision is believed to be the first of its kind and could open the door to additional legal action. Ippolito Shepard told the Washington Post on Tuesday that she believed the decision was a win for people like her who have complained about the smell of marijuana since the drug has been allowed in most states in some form. The 76-year-old argued during the trial in January that she has faced health problems, including difficulty sleeping ever since she noticed the smell of marijuana, which is legal in the district in her Cleveland Park home. She said the owner of the adjoining home, Angela Farsarotu, has allowed Cackett, who rents a ground-level accessory apartment, to smoke without consequences. Farsarotu and Cackett responded that they have no legal responsibility for Ippolito Shepard's ailments. The decision comes as complaints over the smell of marijuana have arisen amid a boom in the cannabis industry. In a legal gray area where marijuana is still illegally federally but san- illegal federally but sanctioned by states, users, sellers, growers, and others have operated with caution about pioneering a new frontier. Now the concern about legal percuss- repercussions of the smell is another issue. Cackett testified in court that the medical marijuana relieves his pain and helps him sleep after physically intensive shifts as a restaurant manager. He said that he smoked about 8 to 12 puffs at night after he gets off work, typically outside if the weather was tolerable, and he denied smoking all day and all night, as the plaintiff alleges. I am not Snoop Dogg, he said during the trial. Farsarodu did not respond to requests for comment after the judge's decision. Cackett said in an email that he contests that he smokes inside his apartment. It's a big win from the public health perspective because it's setting a precedent for all the people that are in similar situations, said Ippolito Shepard, who represented herself in the case. Since the Post first reported on her case, Ippolito Shepard said she has received messages from others considering legal actions. Public health experts previously told the Post that secondhand marijuana smoke has some of the same cancer-causing toxins as secondhand tobacco smoke. However, the federal government's classification of marijuana as a Schedule I drug has made it difficult to study the long-term effects of the drug or its secondhand smoke. Marijuana legalization proponents have expressed concerns that restrictions on where people can smoke would limit people's ability to use the drug for medical or recreational reasons. Federal disability protections do not extend to medical cannabis patients because of marijuana's federal legal status. Some California cities have weighed imposing bans on smoking in multi-unit housing as complaints have arisen amid the newfound popularity of the now-legal drug. On Tuesday, Dale Geringer, who leads the California chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and Paul Armentano, the the deputy director of Normal, said that long-term exposure to marijuana smoke has not been linked to serious respiratory ailments as researchers have found with tobacco smoke. J.P. Simkowitz, an attorney representing complaining neighbors in a similar ongoing case, said Ippolito Shepard's legal win does not set a legal precedent as an appellate decision would. If you're faced with a neighbor that has a smoking problem and it's coming into your house, you can go to them and say, look, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. If we go to court, it's going to take money, it's going to take time, and eventually I'm going to win, said Simkowitz, who is also an advisory neighborhood commissioner. That's the persuasive value. 
Some advocates for legal cannabis are among those sympathetic to the idea that marijuana smoke can be a nuisance and broadly agree that part of being a responsible cannabis consumer is being mindful of neighbors and surroundings. The best solution, they argue, is to expand and regulate public spaces where people can legally consume cannabis, just as was done with tobacco. Adam Eidinger, a Washington-based cannabis rights activist who spearheaded the proposal to legalize marijuana in D.C., said the problem of cannabis smokers annoying their neighbors will go away tomorrow if district leaders would legalize its public use. He supports having reasonable guidelines to regulate smoking in public places, such as requiring people to smoke a certain distance from entrances or from children, but said it should not be outright banned. Hopefully this is a wake-up call for cannabis smokers that they should be fighting for outdoor common use space and social use locations, Eidinger said. Under the district's current policy, with some exceptions for minors and those with outstanding warrants, most people cited for smoking marijuana in public must report for booking to a police station within two weeks and can choose between fighting the citation in court or paying a $25 fine. Eidinger said the rule disproportionately affects residents who live in public housing who are subject to eviction and arrest under federal laws if caught using marijuana, even for approved medical reasons. More broadly, he said, the density of Washington, where many people don't have private yards or patios, makes lighting up indoors the only legal option for many. It's a complicated issue when you people living in an urban environment. It's a complicated issue when you have people living in an urban environment and they have no lawful place to smoke outdoors, he said. White woman who shot black neighbor through door is arrested by Annabelle Timsit. A white woman accused of shooting and killing her black neighbor, 35-year-old Ajiki A.J. Owens, over a dispute involving Owens' children, has been arrested in Marion County, Florida. Susan Louise Lawrence, 58, was charged Tuesday with manslaughter with a firearm, culpable negligence, battery, and two counts of assault, the Marion County Sheriff's Office said. The justice we have all been seeking has been served, Sheriff Billy Wood said in a video posted Tuesday on social media. The arrest came amid growing pressure from Owen's family and local politicians for a stronger response to what lawyers representing the family called an unjustified killing. Around 9 p.m. Friday, deputies received a call about possible trespassing at a property in Ocala, Florida, about 40 miles south of Gainesville, Wood said Monday during a news conference. When the officers arrived, they found a woman, later identified as Owens, suffering from a gunshot wound, Wood said. They tried to save her, but she later died, Wood said. Following a major crimes unit investigation, which included interviews with Owens' children and other witnesses, and uncovered surveillance footage and other forensic and digital evidence, detectives concluded that over a period of time, Lawrence had become angry at Owens' children, who were playing in a field close to her home. On Friday night, according to the sheriff's office, Lawrence engaged in an argument with the children and was overheard yelling at them by a neighbor, throwing a roller skate at Owen's 10-year-old son that hit him in the toe. She also swung at Owen's son and his brother with an umbrella when they attempted to speak to her, the office said. When the children notified their mother, Owens approached Lawrence's home, knocked on the door multiple times, and demanded that Lawrence come outside, the sheriff's office said. Lawrence then fired one shot through the door, striking Owens in her upper chest, the sheriff's office said, adding that Owens was fatally shot with her 10-year-old son standing beside her. According to the sheriff's office, Lawrence told investigators that she and Owens had a past history of animosity and claimed that Owens previously attacked her. She said that she acted in self-defense in shooting Owens and that Owens had been trying to break down her door prior to her discharging her firearm, the office said. Woods previously said that before making an arrest in this case, his office had to determine whether the shooter's response was justified under Florida's standard ground law, which states that a person can use deadly force if they reasonable, reasonably believe it could prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another. Following their investigation, detectives were able to establish that Lawrence's actions were not justifiable under Florida's law, the sheriff's office said. The case prompted calls for a quick arrest amid protests in the community. 
Some Florida Democrats also called for the woman to be charged. Attorneys representing Owen's family said in a statement that they were relieved to learn of the arrest, but they argued it took too long and blamed the delays on archaic laws like stand your ground. What does it say when a person can shoot and kill an unarmed mother in the presence of her young children and not be immediately taken into custody, questioned, and charged, they said in a statement. On Tuesday, Woods, the sheriff, applauded the work of his department that led to Lawrence's arrest and criticized what he described as efforts to rush his office. The laws in the state of Florida are clear, he said. Rushing in to make an arrest is not the right thing to do sometimes. In fact, it can probably cause worse complications or cause errors. Woods described Florida's stand-your-ground law as a great law designed to help Floridians defend themselves and keep themselves safe. However, he said, the law did not apply to the shooting of Owens. It was simply a killing, he said. Pope Francis to have intestinal surgery, the Vatican says, by Stefano Petrelli and Anthony Fiola. And there's a photograph of Pope Francis in a crowd waving as he blesses a child. Byline Rome. Pope Francis was hospitalized for intestinal surgery on Wednesday, the Vatican said, a procedure expected to keep the 86-year-old pontiff under care for several days and raised fresh concerns about his declining health. The Vatican said the procedure was designed to address an intestinal obstruction caused by a painful hernia. Two years ago, the Pope had 13 inches of his colon removed to address a stenosis or narrowing of his large intestine. Francis, who was elected 10 years ago and taken to Rome's largest, was taken to Rome's largest hospital, Gemelli, in the early afternoon Rome time, following general audiences at the Vatican. The decision to move forward with the operation came after he had tests a day earlier. Doctors, the Vatican said, would insert an intestinal prosthesis into the Pope in a process called a laparotomy, and Francis would be under general anesthesia. It's no joke, huh? said a Vatican official after, after he looked up the surgery, especially because it's an elderly person. I trust the people in whose hands he is, but it's no walk in the park. He spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the subject. In the past, the Pope said he had declined to have knee surgery because of the need to use general anesthesia and how he hadn't reacted well to it during the 2021 surgery. It's a bit surprising, right? Let's pray the Lord that it will be successful, said another high-ranking Vatican official who also spoke on the condition of anonymity while sounding distressed. Despite concerns about his health, the Pope, one of the eldest in history, has remained resilient and diligently keeps a busy agenda. On Wednesday morning, he greeted the faithful in St. Peter's Square after his general audience, blessing a child with a hand on his head and making his rounds in the uncovered Pope Mobile in the bright sunlight. The Pope, who has had part of a lung removed when he was a young man, has suffered from increasing health issues in recent years. This is his second hospitalization of the year. He was brought to Gemelli Hospital in March after coming down with bronchitis ahead of Easter week celebrations, drawing widespread concern and speculation about his health. While he was only in the hospital for a few days, it came ahead of the busy Holy Week and Easter period, and the Vatican issued daily updates showing the Pope working, eating pizza, baptizing infants, and handing out chocolate eggs on the pediatric oncology ward. His last colon surgery in July 2021 was a three-hour procedure performed at the same hospital. Although the Pope has proved resilient and active, he has faced mounting challenges. He has suffered from chronic knee pain that prompted the use of a wheelchair and a walking stick. I don't think I can continue with the same pace of the trips as before. I think that at my age and with this limitation, I have to spare myself a bit to be able to serve the church, Francis said after a trip to Canada last year. But I will continue to make trips and be close to, pe to the people because I think closeness is a way to serve. The Vatican has announced a busy schedule for the Pope this year, including planned trips to Portugal for World Youth Day in the first week of August, as well as a trip to Mongolia later that month. NTSB examines wreckage of plane intercepted after F-16 sonic boom. Subhead, those who knew the pilot described him as a safety-conscious former captain for Southwest Airlines. By Ian Duncan and Emily Davies. 
National Transportation Safety Board investigators spent Tuesday at a Virginia crash site combing through the wreckage of a plane linked to a sonic broom heard across Washington as a picture emerged of the pilot as an experienced, safety-focused former airline captain. The location of the crash, the destruction of the plane, and questions about whether the Cessna citation had an operating black box highlight the arduous job of NTSB investigators tasked with determining what happened. Investigators are encountering a challenging scene in difficult-to-access woods in the western Virginia mountains. The plane was destroyed in the crash, leaving it no longer identifiable as an aircraft, lead investigator investigator Adam Gerhardt said near the scene. Recovered wreckage will probably be removed by helicopter. The NTSB didn't know Tuesday whether the plane was operating with voice and data recorders that could help determine the cause of the crash. This is a rather extreme example of an airplane that impacted terrain, Gerhardt said. It's already a challenging process and it makes that much it makes it that much more challenging for challenging for us, but we will be here for as long as it takes. And there's a map of the path of the uh, the aircraft in question. The Cessna citation lost contact with air traffic controllers shortly after taking off Sunday from a small airport in eastern Tennessee. The aircraft flew close to its intended destination on Long Island before turning around, leading the military to scramble fighter jets and intercept it as the plane headed toward Washington's restricted airspace. The F-16s were cleared to fly at supersonic speeds, causing a sonic boom heard across the region. Once they reached the private jet, military pilots reported the citation's pilot was slumped over in his seat, a Defense Department spokesman confirmed. Experts say publicly available data indicates the plane might have lost pressurization, leaving the pilot and passengers unconscious and the jet on autopilot until it ran out of fuel. Virginia State Police said it will probably take weeks to positively identify the four victims. John Rumpel, the owner of the plane, named those on board as his daughter, Adina Azarian, granddaughter Aria, the girls' live-in nanny, and pilot Jeff Hefner. Rumpel and others who knew Azarian said they didn't know the name of the nanny. Efforts to contact her family Tuesday were unsuccessful. In a statement issued by a lawyer, Hefner's family said his career began in crop dusting and spanned more than 40 years. We are devastated by the news of this tragedy, which took the lives of Jeff and all three passengers, they said. Our hearts are full of sorrow for John and Barbara Rumpel for the loss of their daughter, granddaughter, and nanny. Hefner was a retired Southwest Airlines captain and former member of its pilot union board of directors, the, the group confirmed. He had recently obtained the highest level Federal Aviation Administration medical certificate and was flying was rated to fly Boeing 737s, among other planes. Jeff was a defender of his fellow pilots, safety careers, and family, the Southwest Airlines Pilot Association said in a statement. We offer our deepest condolences to his wife, his family, and his friends. The aviation community has lost a true champion. Florida Attorney General Dan Newland said Hefner had flown him at least 100 times over the past five years. He described Hefner as Mr. Safety. When it came to flying, he was always super serious, super cautious, and very focused. He knew aviation inside and out. It was his passion. Newland said he spends considerable time sifting through the records of potential pilots for his law firm adding that his decision to hire Hefner was easy. He pointed to Hefner's flight history, which he said included 25 years and more than 25,000 flight hours with Southwest. He was also certified as an aircraft mechanic, Newland said. With Hefner as his captain over the years, Newland said he learned how much Hefner prioritized his wife and three children. Most other pilots, Newland said, like to tack on extra days during trips to enjoy new places. Hefner was consistently on the first commercial flight home to see his family. This is what I admire most and remember most about Jeff, Newland said. He really put family first. Newland said Hefner flew him last month on a flight from Orlando to Medellin, Colombia. 
In the air, Hefner knew how to steer tail draggers, planes that have a landing wheel at the back, prop jets, and B-17s on the ground, according to his former co-captain. He knew where to find the best aircraft museums and how to speak in detail about radial engines and jet engines. I am telling you, he was very involved in aviation, said Giovanni Attilis Garcia, a plight who said he, a pilot who said he had done about 30 flights with Hefner, including as recently as last week. I know airplanes, but he knew the details. Garcia described Hefner as cautious in the air, a sentiment echoed by multiple passengers who have flown with him. When the two flew private planes together, Garcia said, Hefner used standard practices from his days flying commercial airplanes, which are far more detailed and formal than what is required on smaller aircraft. Garcia said Hefner invited him to spend the night at his family home in Satellite Beach, Florida. He said Hefner liked to cook steak while his wife prepared vegetables. The couple chatted over dinner alongside their son and two daughters about how much they enjoyed their community, urging Garcia to consider moving to the neighborhood. The two met up last week to test fly a plane that had come out of maintenance. Airborne, they ticked through a checklist confirming the plane was safe to fly. Garcia said he noticed Hefner's lock screen on his phone. It was of his wife smiling in front of a jet. On Sunday, Hefner was flying Azarian home to New York after a four-day vacation with Rumpel. It's not clear what happened aboard the aircraft, and the NTSB's investigation will probably take at least a year to complete, with a preliminary report expected in about three weeks. The investigation will delve into the conditions of the plane, its maintenance history, the role of the weather, and Hefner's pilot records. The plane's full history on file with the FAA was not immediately available Tuesday. Friends of Azarian describe her as finding success in the real estate business and as a devoted mother with a close relationship to the nanny whom the family friends knew as Nanny V. Jillian Gordon, who knew Azarian through a memoir writing group, likened the trio of passengers on the plane to a family unit. To lose all three is pretty goddamn awful, Gordon said. Azarian shared a picture of the three on Instagram last year, writing, family is not just genetic. Gordon said Azarian was one of the most talented writers in their group, which she said started during the pandemic and often had the feeling of group therapy. Azarian wrote through the eyes of her daughter, Gordon said. Gordon quoted from an, an essay Azarian had written to her daughter, describing how one day her mother would become an angel, but would leave her a home and memories. And when the time comes when mommy is no longer here physically with you, you will see me in your mind's eye in these rooms and smile, and I will make a new home right in the middle of your heart. And it is there I will always be, as Arian wrote. The F-16's sonic boom was heard from Springfield, Virginia to Bowie, Maryland, according to reports on social media. It created confusion in the region for about an hour Sunday, leaving authorities hunting for answers about its origins. Fairfax County Police Lieutenant Jim Curry said the department sent up a helicopter from about 325 to 340 Sunday after receiving reports indicating an explosion. Our helicopter subsequently launched in an attempt to identify the specific location, he said. While the helicopter was in the air, Curry said officials determined the noise was a sonic boom from an aircraft and not from an actual explosion. Don Lamoth and a Olivia Diaz contributed to this report. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 7th issue of the Washington Post. Your reader has been Ruth Yanoff. Thank you for listening.